Well, we made it through the day. And it's something to spend a full day in meditation practice. There's been some ups and downs, I'm sure, for everybody. and um, For us, too, as the team. But what I'm really wondering in terms of the teaching and you all and the impact on you is, do you feel that there's an access through this practice to a sense of being more embodied somewhat? Yeah. You feel it? You're sort of, there's a more connected quality or a skill or a knowing how to move into connection or find the place where you're already connected kind of thing? Yeah? All right. Does that feel like a kind of like it's a good thing? <laughs> the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? It's not just because someone says, oh, you know, you want to be more embodied. Because it's not easy and it's not only comfortable. Like, I, um, one of my past embodiments was as a mountaineering instructor and outdoor um, adventure journalist. Like I walked from the coast of Peru to the jungle over the big mountain ranges once and stuff like that. I did some pretty heavy-duty things, which now result in difficult knee problems. But I remember when I was first starting, and I thought, wow, hiking and stuff. And I had no idea of how physically difficult and unpleasant it would be (laughs) and how I would feel like, God, I only know the first two lines of these songs that keep running through my head. Why don't I know line four, five, and six, you know? <laughs> like, um, but then, the, you know, I got used to the difficulty and found kind of an accommodation with it, which reminds me of the question about sitting, which is that one does get also more used to it over time, like to what it feels like, like the body kind of like finds body-mind kind of finds a a way of being with it, not that it stops being uncomfortable. It's just that it's uncomfortable in a way that can feel, well, sometimes just horrible, but sometimes, (laughs) you know, you get used to it the way you get used to anything, um, any kind of physical endeavor. So sitting is also a physical endeavor. But, you know, what we do here is not necessarily that easy, Otherwise, we wouldn't have to have this kind of special situation and the support of one another to um, be able to get through a day of sitting and walking and you know, really making this unusual for a human being mental effort of coming back and coming into the presence and re-embodying ourselves, so remembering ourselves. I'm reminded of the myth of Osiris, the Egyptian god who was chopped up into little pieces all over the place and then bringing himself back together was part of a festival of some sort. Part of the myth was to bring all the pieces of him back together to reform this divinity, which is what it sort of feels like we do when we recollect our mind and bring it back and invite it to sort of see clearly and be settled And we've left the instructions really very open um, in order that your experience, uh, we hoped, would feel genuine and would belong to you so that it's like to find your own proprioception and your own internal sense at the same sort of where the body and mind connect, which to make it a personal experience for each of us. That's how the journey goes. 
It's not something that happens in your head. It's something that happens as kind of a whole psyche being embodied experience. And also um, the movement classes that Booker has offered so skillfully, they can release places of tension and produce some sensations that um, the attention is eager to notice. And so it's beneficial in both ways so that the mind is kind of like not um, asked to inhabit, you know, this crown of thorns or something like that to let the um, energy move and to use some of the just as ancient techniques of yoga to help um, sort of the physical and and mental energies come together. So um, I'm happy to think that there's, it's been somewhat effective for you all. Ajahn Chah says, suppose we are given a fruit. If we don't practice with it, if we just hold it in our hand, it's like just touching the rind. Can our hand sense the sourness of the fruit? No. Can our hand sense the sweetness of the fruit? No. So you have to eat the fruit, and then you have the taste of it. So as he says, when you practice like this and you have your own experience, you're something called sakibuto. You're your own witness. You're the one who knows for yourself what has happened for you. And you can have your own discernment about whether this is good or not good. So when we see the physical and mental events for ourselves, and we see what, let's say, the value of, call it this mindfulness intervention is, then it really belongs to us. And it's not Uh, coming to us from some external authority. You've had to trust us, the two of us, to guide you and to come here and to put in quite a bit of work, but that is, you know, the fruit is a kind of different level understanding that um, ripens more and more through uh, one's life, if you keep doing this, Um, the ability to see mental and physical events for oneself. We've probably also seen that our mind and body um, interact in times of agitation and stress, like times, uh, one of the questions was about the end of the sitting when the mind is kind of on fire because the body's on fire and there doesn't seem to be anywhere to go, um, that these buildups happen. And we might also remember or know that in our regular life, there can be a way that no matter what posture we are in, sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, our mind can remain agitated and stressed and out of touch with the body for quite long periods of time, but only relating basically to its own agitation and its own stress. And outer events enter our mind and heart and can create this kind of stress and lead us into this kind of long periods of real difficulty and suffering that um, sort of become their own cycle. You agree? Yes. Just a question. Sure. Training and focus has been focusing on breathing. Yes. How is that different? It's not different. He says his training has been on focusing on breathing. It's still a um, connection to the physical body. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, we've left the instruction pretty open, like with some invitations to go to specific sensations, but mostly to 
maybe the whole body field has been a little bit what we've been presenting. Um, but just relaxing with and into sensations. I'd, we haven't wanted to say, like, you want to really focus. And uh, the reason behind that is actually because when the mind is more open and relaxed, then a little thinking comes. You're kind of like, oh, all right. You know, it, I think sometimes when the mind is invited to really lock onto the breath, it can produce its own really powerful effects. But it's also often will feel like when thinking arises that it's feels more disruptive in the overall experience than when there's a more open thing. So we thought it's also an experiment for a 20, basically 24-hour retreat to have this kind of easy, um, easy thing, hoping that it will also be more portable in a way because, say, if you're driving your car or something, you might find it easier to just feel embodied than to notice your breathing and traffic, you know, so... <laughs> It's kind of like do not operate heavy machinery while focusing too hard on your breath. <laughs> so with this, we can see, you know, like our mind gets, uh, we had a great teacher in the blizzard stuff. And by the way, Maine has a 100% chance of snow at 5 p.m. tomorrow, um, but only about 55% afternoon. So I don't know what you want to do with that, but... Um, stimuli come up that we can't necessarily prepare for or surprising things happen or sometimes someone tells us you know stop doing that or you misplace your eyeglasses or you lose your phone you know these outer events that come in and agitate our minds and it's painful when that happens and we often don't know we don't have the skill or we don't remember to put the skill into practice to reduce um, all these preoccupations that sh- tend to shake us up in life. So to be able to just connect with the body in a respectful way, like not to say that it's, you know, the mind is wrong for getting preoccupied. It's a trying to always optimize our survival chances and make sure that we have our phone, which is part of that whole um, situation, and have the things that we need and want. It's, a, it's an optimizing machine, but it doesn't have necessarily all the skills that it might ought to have and this just recourse to feeling the breath or feeling the body or re-entering the present moment has a way of stopping the escalation of what happens in the mind. The other thing that happens when we um, pay attention to the body, there's enough discomfort and blockage that we need um, the skills of opening our awareness and opening our heart to difficulty within our physical experience. So it's not just that it's you come to the body and suddenly you're in paradise. There's some stuff there that kind of needs our heart skill to approach. So you can go right in and um, be with something that feels uncomfortable in a kind way. And when the intervention is there with the kindness, then the mind's you know, rage and pushing away and I'm going to die of this shifts into kind of like it's one of the options for the response. But the other response is to just feel what happens without reactivity. So that also reduces the overall scale of suffering. It may not get rid of the original unpleasant sensation, but sometimes it actually does, I've noticed. That when my attention can go in and get close to something, Booker talked about that, that you start to feel the play of heat 
and maybe some movement or some stabbing and there's a kind of interest in the bare sensations and then you say, well, this just feels intense but you might not label it as pain anymore. In fact, you start getting interested in it and the way it changes and the whole way that it's put together. When you get in very close to it, you see it differently without the aversion. So on the plane... um, when I came over here, I'm going to give an example of how the mind builds up something really intense. Like I'm sitting next to this um, other female person who's reading a magazine and it's getting dark. So I reach up and I turn my light on and then I turn the other person's light on and they're reading a magazine and my eye just glances over there and it said, you know, Ryan is a visionary with really big plans and I was like, oh my God, Paul Ryan. She's reading something about Paul Ryan. And then I look at her, and she has a ponytail, and she's very tidy. She's a kind of tight person with her ponytail coming out the back of her hat, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, that's a member of the enemy political party. <laughs> I can just see it. Everything about this person is giving off this sign of like they're ready to damage healthcare. You know, <laughs> and then I look again over there, and I think like, but I turned on the light for them, and I want to feel like that we're both human beings, and I want to work with my reactivity and stuff, and I want to feel like I'm sitting next to another human being, and sort of respect that we could be different. And then I look over there, and suddenly it's a uh, the age of diversity, and I'm like, oh, so it was a completely different Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> It was somebody named Tim Ryan, who's the chairman of this $35.9 billion uh, Fortune magazine accounting company, who's getting all the accounting, big, huge accounting companies to be more tolerant and diverse in hiring people and really respectful of individual differences and how like people like this are changing the business world and becoming making the whole world more inclusive. And I was like, oh my God, what an idiot I am. <laughs> like, you know, but I, had, I saw how my mind had built this kind of gigantic court case or something. with, And also, like, the whole way that with that ponytail, I knew it. I knew it. You know? <laughs> like, and we're in a time when it's kind of like this. Like, all the, like, stereotypes are just ready to, like, ignite. And I was really happy that I had sort of the perception was able to go the other way. And I'm, now I'm sitting next to a friend. Um, you know? <laughs> And what I think about, too, is that there's this physical um, quality of being very alarmed by what we believe might be harmful. You know, I thought I was actually sitting next to a harmful person, someone who might do harm to someone like me or someone that I care about or some general value um, might create physical suffering down since I'm thinking in terms of healthcare, like so that my sort of a body of assumptions was that physical suffering is going to be caused by this person. And then it was like, no, actually they're safe for bodies in terms of like insurance and abstract structures there um, like that. So the construction became um, their safety here and my whole kind of limbic fight or flight thing went away and relaxed. So I don't want to say that I, you know, when I said I'm so dumb, it was kind of like, you just see how a partial perception leads one way. It doesn't mean that the whole world is safe. It means that sometimes we get alarmed by things, times when we feel unsafe. 
There was another time when I should have had more fight or flight when I was training for a marathon in Miami and I had to run. I was working at a newspaper, so I had to do like one of my many hours of running after dark. So I was in my 20s and wearing these little shorts and stuff and um, I was going along the sidewalk and on a very large avenue and this male human being was walking in my direction. I got this funny feeling like, oh... And I was like, oh, come on, you know, this is a bright lighted avenue, blah, blah. Well, you know the result, he jumps on me, you know, and I'm like, why didn't I listen to my gut on this? Why did my brain override what I was feeling? And fortunately, really nothing happened. I heard this horrible noise, which turned out to be me screaming. And he said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And he got, he got up and ran away, like trying to get me to believe that he had actually was thinking that I was someone else who he was intending to really get or something. I don't know. It was just something (laughs) weird. And he ran across the street um, and disappeared into a vacant lot. So then I thought, you know, the mind and body and the intuition and all of those things, it's very interesting how, you know, certain things have primacy in in our mind. Like we're a system that has a lot of different components and different things have like more force and less force in what happens and that influences that's kind of how our life goes choices that we make influenced by feelings desires how much information we have available like the storm now we don't have a hundred percent information about what will happen and that's part of what gives us a sense of fear at times however um, we can choose to be with people with whom we feel safe and our body will know that to some degree Um, And sometimes we get triggered by old things that have happened to us, and we have to unlearn that with the grace and help of other people and good techniques. It could be therapy or mindfulness or a combination of all of the above. So there's a way that our whole body is part of our mind. Like That's part of what we see when we do this meditation practice, that Um, our mind is somehow involved all through our body, even when it thinks that it isn't, even when we're mostly living in our head. When we're mostly living in our head, it has an effect on the body. It actually, uh, when the mind and body sort of separate, the body gets contracted and stressed out, and it starts to store tension in different areas. Like, have you felt like those funny places in your shoulder or something like that where you hardly realize that it was up like this until you're sitting, and all of a sudden it goes kunk? Or... Booker invites the elbows to be heavy, and all of a sudden you realize, like for me, sometimes my shoulders go down so far, I'm like, are they going to fall off? Like, <laughs> is it even going to be like sticking out like this? It feels like it's going flat, and there's a little bit of fear, like, wow, should it really be down so far like this? <laughs> <laughs> so the practice leads onward to train our heart and mind to see more deeply and more clearly. Um, as we train to be present in this way, to be present with this caring and this kind of openness that in a certain way doesn't react or doesn't enter into the cycle of buildup of this um, buildup of perceptions, buildup that takes place sort of as a mental construction divorced from present moment reality. I was talking last night about my Tibetan teacher and his relationship with the baby horse that he had and the story goes on that first, you know, he says that give it something nice or give it some kindness and then the horse is less frightened and it still gets crazy and runs away and then it starts coming back and coming back and eventually he said, you know, he would 
he put a blanket on its back and it bucked it off a few times and then finally it would walk around the, with the blanket and then um, I said, did you ever have to do that thing, like break it in a corral? And he said, no, like then after the blanket, I put my arm on it, you know, on its back and we walked around like that and then eventually I was able to get on and it just walked because it didn't, wasn't afraid it had been treated with kindness the entire time. And in the end, he didn't have to keep it in a corral or tied up. It would just hang around the house kind of thing, you know, <laughs> like... <laughs> very well trained and tamed. Like, I'm not saying that you know, we're having the um, sole value of becoming very tame. That's not, um, doesn't have to go all the way to there. But just that um, the sense of responding to our reality with kindness and some kind of openness can become more habitual. And when that happens, it starts to deconstruct things that you... Um, might never have assumed were possible to tolerate. And it really does help to have some kind of physical discipline of something like yoga or qigong or exercise. Like I think the combination of movement and sitting practice, there are studies that show that that's really good. So what we have here is a kind of a tool. Like um, I subscribe to one of those geeky biohacking newsletters where they've persuaded me to put coconut oil in my coffee in the morning because it's good for my brain, (laughs) but it also tastes really good. Um, And this mindfulness is a little bit like that, like it's the coconut oil you can put in your coffee, um, bringing the mind back to the body and kind of undisassociating the body and the mind. It doesn't mean that you have to sort of nail them together, like that they can never ever like separate, that you could never like go in a fantasy or imagine something or do a creative project that seems to be solely in your mind, but just to remember that um, coming back is good. Rediscovering the unity that's always here, that's part of our uh, makeup and build up, and for some reason it's good to come and inhabit the unity, uh, the inseparability. There's one thing, friends, that when cultivated, this is the Buddha, um, when cultivated and regularly practiced, leads to a deep sense of urgency, to supreme peace, to awareness and clear comprehension, to right vision and knowledge, to happiness here and now, to realizing deliverance by wisdom and the fruition of holiness and that is mindfulness of the body. So he's using very grand language as a sales pitch to people that um, saying this is what can happen. So the deep sense of urgency I want to unpack because that doesn't sound like we've been talking about relaxing and peace, but the deep sense of urgency relates to um, recognizing the changing and vulnerable nature of the body like that we would want to live every moment before we die. You know, like not spend... So Eckhart Tolle says, um, you know, that the dash between your birth and death, how are we going to live it? You know, we have a certain number of heartbeats in our life. Would we like to be present or would we like to be lost in our mind the whole time, lost in reactivity? And um, so the urgency is to live the life that we have um, in presence and embodied. Other kinds of benefits for this um, are talked about in sort of athletic books about peak performance and things like that. Um, As I was quoting a little bit from George Mumford, our friend who has trained a lot of athletes. It's actually fun. I watched a uh, basketball game 
with George. This is also a, a gift to the males in the room and the sports fans. I kind of associate there's a, probably more sports fans in the male contingent, and someone had mentioned that the men are not getting as much of a presence. So, um, Watching this basketball game, which it's a game I don't understand very well, but George was watching the way the players were embodied. The Golden State Warriors were playing a team that they thought they could beat, and he said that they were very arrogant, they were cocky, they had stopped. They were playing from the top half of their body, not grounded in, like, and they weren't passing. They were just like, because they felt that they could win, they were taking a lot of individual shots and not like moving in concerted action. And the way that they were embodied, he said, like in the first 10 minutes of the game, he said, if they don't change this, they're going to lose. And they did. It was really interesting um, that the body and mind, like an attitude like that, can affect an outcome to that degree. Um, so here he writes that um, former Celtics player, Celtics player, you can see I'm not a fan Celtic. <laughs> I'm even from Boston. <laughs> Don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> He'd say every so often a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than physical or even mental. It would become magical. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. It would surround not only me and the other team, but even the referees. At that level, all sorts of odd things happened. The game would be in the white heat of competition, yet somehow I didn't feel competitive, which is kind of a miracle in itself. I'd be putting out maximum effort, straining and coughing up parts of my lungs as we ran, yet I never felt any pain. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. I could sense, almost, how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken. Even before the other team brought the, rebound, the ball inbounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming over there, except I knew that everything would change if I said something. So that's a highly trained physical, mental presence with intuition. And the piece that I thought was really interesting is that the game could be very competitive and that He's not feeling competitive. He's just playing the game. So that external sort of secondary mind piece isn't interfering with the holistic thing, the holistic presence and the holistic performance. So he's very focused in the moment. Um, As George breaks it down, time slows down a little bit. Winning was not in the mind. The focus was the journey. So it sort of transcended the boundary between the physical and the mental that the mind and body were synchronized, which is a little bit what we're offering in terms of um, this practice. And it may be that at some time today you kind of might have felt that, that the, sometimes the mind and body seem to sort of merge and there's a quality of a opening that happens. Um, and if you don't know what that means, it may be that you experienced it and didn't notice it, or you might like to invite what happens if my awareness and the experience kind of merge? What, what happens if I merge into the experience with awareness? See what? that invitation might do. So the other thing that comes through this um, basketball story is that um, there can be kind of like a lot of intensity in the mind, like maybe what we were feeling about the blizzard, and we can be very aware, and almost it's almost as if the, the storminess accentuates the sense of peace at the center of it. Like sometimes when 
some structure that we thought was necessary dissolves, there's an opportunity for an incredibly radical openness to something new or something that needs to happen. Because we do get attached to what we forecast as being the way that things are going to go. You know, like part of what gets upsetting about, well, was the retreat going to end early? You know, like, it's not what we thought. What will we do? You know, we expected it to be one way. Suddenly it's another way. And if we sit with that, sometimes this ability to just be completely open, the openness is so beautiful when something changes like this. It's great. Not to say that things like grief and loss and pain are things that create sort of like opportunities for bliss or something like that, but there's some times when we can really be open to something that's happening, even if it's really painful, that that is where the healing has to come. I had meant to bring a quote from the staff dining room from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a, I think he's a Catholic priest, I'm not sure, some sort of, I would have looked it up if we hadn't had the whole lizard thing. But there's a table in the staff dining room with the photographs of dear people from this community who have died and um, or who are very ill and Bonhoeffer says you know the loss and the grief and the sense of emptiness never heals but if you accept that sense of the pain that happens when you lose someone that's actually the bond of love that remains in your life um, of that person so not to turn away from some of those deep feelings of loss or grief or you know what happens um, it's actually a form of love to be able to stay with that. And I know from having gone, my father died a couple of years ago, and uh, we had had a tremendously tumultuous, difficult relationship, but toward the ends of his life, we had some healing that went on, and um, having to be and go through all the grief stages, it really required a kind of, it was very demanding in a certain way, it was sort of you know, a type of altered state, but because of the training, the instructions, and you know the understandings of process, not that I did it perfectly or beautifully, I still miss him uh, a lot, but to be able to go through and feel what needed to be felt was really important. It was kind of part of the, part of the relationship. Um, so we know that when we were reading the sheets that there's numbers of people in here who have recent losses of very dear ones in your lives so it's part of that you can live through that also in in a state of presence and openness and help um, help yourself sometimes move it through the body with some being present and also some kinds of exercise movements can be helpful to let the process also move mind and body are incredibly interconnected there's current kind of neuroscience thinking about I forget the person's name. I think he's named Ramachandra, and that's um, a brain scientist from India. And he said, the way that a physical movement takes place is that there's this engendering moment when you have the intention to start doing it. Like you have the intention to get up. And then there's the persisting part in our in the way that our physiology works. There's continuing to do it, and there's always, always, always the option to stop. Like you could 
stop your walking meditation and get tea or something like that. So there's the ongoingness, and then there's the ability to stop, and then there's the completion phase. And all of this is a physical process. And there's the same thing with our thoughts. It's actually the same kind of physiology with a thought-based project. It's like not a separate kind of event for us in body and mind. So to understand this engendering and beginning something like a project and then persisting with it and then letting it go, it's really a physical, it's really like a physical brain event that's similar to the way that we move. It's like it's really fascinating when you think about how much the way that we think about things depends on the kind of body that we have. Like when you say something like, um, you know, inflation reached a peak and then Germany strangled France or something like that, it's all very based on the way that we understand our bodies. Like we understand the world through the way our body lives. But now I'm going off into a little bit of a little bit of theoreticalness. But say, for myself, I am writing this long book, and I've been working on it for a long time, and it has put me through a lot of things. And sometimes when I don't know what's coming next in the way that the book should be, I feel a lot of resistance and fear to doing the work of it because I'm just facing this giant unknown, and I feel like I might be eaten by something, or I'll be crushed by the reviewers, I'll be killed. You know, there's a lot of primordial, I put all my heart into this, and then but I don't know where it's going and things like that. And if I can feel and open to the resistance, find how it is in my body as a physical state and open up and acknowledge it. It's taken me you know, a decade to learn how to do this. Um, that if I feel it and breathe with it and I don't have this secondary agenda that I'm doing it because I want to resolve it and get through it, that I really say, like, I'm going to be with this. When I first used to hear these kinds of instructions, it sounded like some kind of incredibly bizarre, moralistic thing. Like, why wouldn't you want to be with it in order to bring it to an end? You know, like, that's why you should try to be with something that feels horrible. Well, the fact is that the reason why you be with something just being with it and try to, like, leave aside the I'm doing it in order to is because the in order to somehow renders it less effective. Not because you should have this agenda of great purity that you're just going to be with it, you know. It's more like um, it's a different, it allows a different kind of process to take place if we can feel what we feel without the condition that we're trying to make it go away or that we're trying to keep it around. But to still be respectful of the way our mind works, which is that our mind wants to hold on to what's good and be with things that are safe and life-enhancing and get rid of stuff that feels bad you know that's bacteria started off doing that and we do it too we like sweet things you know they may maybe we don't have a sweet tooth but we like things that feel sweet and we cringe away from things that feel bitter or sour or dangerous but that's ultimately not a hundred percent successful strategy so we try to use mindfulness also to keep um, opening to things and um, live a better life ultimately so this kind of overbrain, the ego brain that uh, is in charge of a lot of our operations doesn't necessarily function perfectly. We need to have one. We need to be able to represent ourselves to ourselves. And it's also some kind of emotional thing that has coagulated around the structure in our brain that helps us move our arms and legs. Like the, the thing, how we feel like we're a person 
Am I making any sense? Yeah. The, th the way that we feel like we are a unified person begins with the need to be able to move your arms and legs in coordination with each other. It's a coordinated structure. So that's actually also a very embodied structure. And they now believe that insects have a rudimentary sense of self because they have the same structure in their brain that coordinates their arms and legs. They're able to plan, but they're not able to imagine, I just read. But they also may have some sense of self in their brain. So next time you talk to a fly, you know that <laughs> maybe it even has a little name for itself, who knows? <laughs> it's funny. But the suffering that this ego brain gets into when it starts, you know, has self-preservation and social regard, you know, like social success, which is also a little bit of a survival thing, like love me and don't throw me out onto the ice kind of thing. But then it can go into incredibly like distorted things. Like I was looking at um, a certain tweet or tweet account that, at the real Donald Trump account, and there's a little one of those little gifts. Um, I hope that there isn't a, a that I'm not offending someone deeply in here. Um, am I? Is there, is there a person who's on the political right who voted for the current president? <laughs> really? I drove someone away from the IMS one time by making this kind of remark. I would like to take the name off of it and say that this particular little um, animated, very short picture. Oh my God, this is going out on the internet. Ah, this talk. Ah. I'll have to just put it for retreaters, I guess. Um, so it said, we won, you lost. And in the front of the foreground of the image, there's a, there's a woman crying. And in the background, there's somebody dancing, going, yeah, yeah, isn't it great how sad you feel, you know? And I thought, that's like mean. That's just really mean, that triumphalism of like, I feel good because you feel bad. You know, that's the kind of place where this ego mind that's trying to maximize its success kind of goes over the edge into something that feels not right in the heart, like to mock and make fun of the vulnerability of someone who's crying. Like maybe because I grew up, sometimes my dad was mean. And the minute I started crying, it would be like, ha ha, you know, who can argue with, who could want to talk to you? You're crying kind of thing. But I feel particularly susceptible to that kind of ridicule. But it's not nice, guys. It's not kind. Um, this ability to be vulnerable actually takes a lot of courage. So here's a poem by a woman named Ann Boyer. Um, who's, it's not a poem. It's actually a little piece essay. It's called, um, I think it's from an essay called Who Made the Lamb? She's a poet that I just learned about yesterday from um, Marlon, who made lunch and was wearing the kilt. She's talking about how sick she was. and um, So many people sent me things, books and music, care products, emails, a special necklace to wear to treatments, cannabis popcorn and a pair of Diane de Prima's yoga pants. Bante Kapil um, sent me unicorn socks. Ryan X sent a piece of paper with my name on it. Um, someone else sent me money for my first wig. I didn't know before how gratitude was a sensation, how it overloads your nervous system, makes you feel nothing but it, 
how it can rearrange your perceptions and all else too, registering what all of what is, and especially yourself, as what someone else has made and sustained. So she gets a little complicated at the end. So registering that what all of what is, and especially yourself, is what someone else has made and sustained. So gratitude for the fact that we are not self-sufficient, not self-made, that we're very interdependent, um, and that kindness can flow across those networks rather than uh, something mean. So here's a um, why kindness is good for you. So kindness, especially when it involves actual contact with the person that you're helping, produces chemicals in the brain that benefits the body. One of them is the hormone known as oxytocin, um, which sticks to little binding sites on the cells that line the arteries and veins, stimulating the release of nitric oxide, which then dilates our arteries. The result is that blood flows more easily and blood pressure drops, blah, blah. It's good for you to be kind. And so what we're learning or doing or gaining an ability is a kind of mind over matter thing. You know, if you are a London cab driver and you memorize the whole London cab system and all the highways and byways of London, which you have to do in order to pass your test, you develop a thing in your brain that is different from anyone else, anyone who hasn't memorized all that stuff. And that's the same with the mindful brain or the kindness brain. It changes um, your body. It changes your whole physiology. There's also studies about telomeres, you know, the things that make you age, um, not shriveling as quickly if you're more mindful. Now, it's become like a kind of whole cottage industry is to study all the benefits of physical benefits of mindfulness, but we can change our bodies with this. doesn't mean that you won't get old and sick and die, but you might have a better time on the way, and it might not happen quite as soon. We don't know. We don't have complete control, but some influence over that. So it does um, count, and it does matter that we do this. Do this. So I'll finish um, up in a minute. Oops. Here's uh, Reggie Ray. To put this in general terms, the way to resolve our karma is to experience what's arising from the inside or the outside fully and completely without reservation, judgment, or hangover. For example, when I'm leaving for work in a rush, being short with my wife, and then walking out with no further words, we can see I'm not relating with my experience in a complete way, and it's creating further karma for me. When I rush, I've disengaged. I'm in a disembodied state. I'm running away from the painful feelings of having gotten up late and not left enough time to get ready, afraid of being late for work, unable to be with my wife, who's looking for some basic level of decency and emotional presence. In this disembodied state, though the anxiety is coursing through my body, I'm only dimly aware of feeling it. Anxiety has me by the throat, and I'm trying to deal with it by ignoring it and everything that it reflects. I do this by going faster and faster, as if I could outrun the situation and the anxiety. Is anyone with me so far? So driven by all this fear, I'm skimming the surface of my life, dropping my toothpaste, leaving the pajamas on the floor for this wife to pick up, stubbing my foot on the bedroom door, spilling my coffee, and then being mean to her. I'm in a state of complete disembodiment and such a mind of confusion that I'm unconsciously acting as if being on time is of more consequence than respecting 
the tender and open feelings of my wife, my life partner, and truest friend. So it matters. We can make a difference in our own life and the lives of those we care for by this ability to be physically present. Um, so those who have been here once and just have a taste, uh, please come back if you want to and keep working with this. There's different kinds of instruction, not only about embodiment, but different kinds of things are taught here. Now I'm going to shift in my comments a little bit, and we have changed the schedule for tomorrow morning so that it's everything is a little bit earlier to facilitate all of our departure um, sooner to adapt to the snow, which means that normally there's the silent sitting before breakfast. What we've done now is made it so the people who want to stay asleep longer will not be able to because it'll be room cleaning time. So the vacuum cleaners will be going, but that's the time to uh, pack so the, the, and the schedule is posted on the board. And then we'll have a closing um, sort of ceremony or session. And it's all posted out there on the board, so we did that. But there's one thing that I want to talk about a little bit before we go, which is about um, the giving from the heart and the giving of... One of the people who left earlier was one of my dear friends who came to the retreat just for part of the day and um, has issues with walking on ice, so needed to leave. And she said it's always such wealth and such an exchange of wealth to be here, like the, the true wealth and the true openness of the heart and the true giving of oneself. And the place that we're in and the teachers and staff and everything is maintained by uh, what you give with your intention and your presence with your registration fees and all of that and we keep the um, livelihood support of the teachers outside the fees for the retreat um, because we want it to be like a, a situation where we actually care for each other and an kind of connected way. So when Booker and I come and teach, we don't get anything from IMS at all, just except our travel expenses and the time to be here. So if you feel like taking care of us, you can make an offering in return for our teaching. I have to say that. Um, yeah. Did you raise your hand? No. She just changed position. And there'll be more, a little bit more conversation about that. But the the way that it works, it's just a little bit of a different economic system. It's meant to be that people can give what you're able to give, and you're also free in the relationship. Like, we're free when we come to give, and you are free when you reciprocate. Like, there's not a certain demand that's made out of it. And one of the things, I've thought about this a lot, because sometimes I feel like it's a really strange kind of dinosaur that came from the Buddha's time when there wasn't money um, so the people would give food and shelter and still in um, the East Bay Meditation Center where, um, in a, which was developed of one of the most diverse centers probably in the world maybe it's the most diverse center in the world in a not very prosperous part of Oakland, California people will sometimes bring like their um, cans of food and leave as donations for the teachers to eat like it's really very direct that way and that's what it was in the Buddha's time that People would give um, the monks 
food, shelter, and clothes, and medicine and stuff. And in Thailand, there's still like hospitals that are especially for practitioners and stuff like that, monks and nuns. But here it sort of ends up being money. And the thing about money is it turns something into a transaction. It means like, well, I give you $5, and then we walk away. Like, I have the thing, you have the money, and we're done. The relationship that we had was just a transaction. So in the offering system, which is what we practice here, there's a little bit more intimacy and a little bit more sense of what does it feel like to you to be generous? Like, I'm sorry to actually end up asking you for more money after you already paid for registration, which is... If someone is a billionaire out there, please endow IMS so it can be free for the rest of time. Like, they actually have that as a goal. When I was on the board, we enacted that as an orientation. Like, it would be great if the place could be completely free, but it can't. Still half of what it costs to be here. Wait, you pay half of what it actually costs to be here. Um, and it's even better at the Forest Refuge. The ratio of what you pay to the quality of accommodation is lower, right? So you pay less for something even more cushy. So if you become an experienced practitioner, try out the forest refuge. <laughs> um, just kidding. But in any case, it's a little, um, it feels a little intimate to say this, like that um, this is an offering-based thing. It's a little bit like uh, our friend Anushka says, it's a little bit like Burning Man. You know, while we're here, there's not that economic transaction doesn't enter the room. And in a certain way, we don't want it to be an economic transaction. We want it to be an offering of what we have um, that, we can, that we care about, that we value, that we give, and for you to help us uh, to keep teaching and to live our life. Um, you're invited to make an offering. It's the tradition. We don't get health care. We don't get benefits, nothing. It's just... Um, living on the giving, I guess. There's some boxes outside. There's stuff in envelopes. So I'll close with a poem by um, Karen Mazin Miller, who's a priest at the Hazy Moon Zen Center in Los Angeles. Be generous with your attention that you might dispel the loneliness and isolation that divide us. Be generous with your time and money. They go farther when freed from your hands. Make room for all the people, even if they're the majority, who don't think or act like you. Make an enemy of no one. Be humble. Let others speak. Let others rant. Give argument no mind. Your opinion alters no one's. Be humble. Have abundant patience and trust, knowing that things change in ways you cannot predict. Recognize hate as fear, greed as poverty, and ignorance as our common plight. Have faith, spread cheer, do good. With an open heart and clear mind, vote. Everything you think, say, and do, however small, has a monumental consequence. Your influence is boundless, so take infinite care. You make all the difference in the world today. Give it what you've got. So thank you for your attention to the Dharma talk. And we'll take just a minute of sitting quietly. If anything I said um, bothered you, you can give me feedback if it's really serious. Um, And otherwise, you can keep it to yourself. Um, But also, if there's stuff I said that you disagreed with, there's no need to um, carry it around. It's offered for uh, your 
delight and interest and not imposed. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.